The Complete Norse Mythology, adapted by Kevin Crossley Holland, music by Mats Vent, read by Tom Harris. Part 9 Loki's Flighting On one occasion, some while after Baldur's death, when they could think about him quietly and talk about him calmly for all their foreboding, many of the gods went over to the island of Hlesi for a feast. Ygir received them in his gleaming hall under the waves, and since Thor and Tyr had secured Hymir's mighty cauldron for him, he had no choice but to keep his promise, brew a welter of ale, and entertain his guests. Thor himself was away on another foray into Jotunheim, but Odin and Frigg led the way. Thor's wife, Sif, and Bragi and his wife, Idun, accompanied them. So did Tyr, who had left one hand in the mouth of the wolf Fenrir, and to him the gods renewed their thanks for the part he had played in wresting the cauldron five miles deep from his father Hymir. Njord and his wife Skadi made the journey. So did Fry and Freya, with Fry's two servants, Bigvir and Bela. Odin's son Vidar went with them, and Loki was there. This was not all. Many other gods and a throng of elves gathered in the hall that was lit with great nuggets of shining gold. The guests sat down at the benches in Aegir's two serving men. Femafeng the swift handler, and Ildir the man of fire, moved amongst them. The cups filled themselves with ale, and the hall was filled with the peaceful hum of good talk. When Loki heard one god after another praise the diligence of Aegir's two servants, he began to bridle. The pleasure and goodwill in that place became too much for him. He seethed like boiling water. Then suddenly Loki leapt up. He lunged at Femifir with his knife and killed him. There was an uproar among the benches. The gods stood up, shook their shields, and howled at Loki. They drove him out of the hall, and he escaped into the darkness of the forest on the island of Lesi. Aegir and his wife, Ran, the gods and the elves resumed their places. They began to drink once more. It was not long before Loki returned from the darkness to the feasting hall. He ambushed Aegir's second servant outside the door. Don't move, Elder, he said. Not one step further until you've told me this. What's all the hubbub? When they're not slopping their ale and slurping, what are the great gods talking about? The great gods are comparing their weapons, said Eldir, and their prowess in battle. You won't find a single god in there, not even an elf with a good word to say for you. Oki's mouth twisted into a hideous smile. Never mind, he said. I'm going back in. I don't mean to miss this feast. I'll fill their hearts with hatred and grief and mix venom with their ale. They'll rub your face in your own filth, said Eldir. Have a care, Eldir, before you start to trade insults with me. Whatever you dredge up, I'll repay you twice over. Loki scornfully elbowed Eldir out of the way, and they stepped into the hall. When the feasters saw who had come in, they all stopped drinking and stopped talking. Loki faced the barrier of silence. He sidled to the middle of the great hall. Here's the Sky Traveler, and he's rather thirsty he announced dryly. It's a long journey to Aegir's Hall. Would one of the gods care to bring me a cup of shining ale? Loki stood motionless, 
his head swiveling as he surveyed the gathering ranged all around him. Why are you all so silent, you dismal gang of gods? Haven't you one word between you? Either make room and give me a place at this feast, or else tell me I'm unwelcome. Bragi was never at a loss for words. He called out, The gods will no longer make room and give you a place amongst them. You're not the kind of company they want at a feast. Loki ignored Bragi altogether and addressed himself to the High One. Remember, Odin, how long ago we mixed our blood in brotherhood? You swore then that you would only drink if a drink were brought to us both. Move up then, Vidar, said Odin, turning to his son. Make room for the wolf's father at this feast. We don't want any more of Loki's troublemaking here at Aegir's Hall. Vidar got up, poured out a cup of ale and handed it to Loki. Then Loki looked around him, and anyone who was close enough to him could see his spiteful expression. Greetings, gods! Goddesses, greetings, called Loki. I greet all this holy gathering, all but one. Bragi slumped on the bench over there. Bragi shook his head. If only you'll keep your rancor to yourself and spare yourself the fury of the gods, I'll give you a horse out of my own horde. I'll give you a sword. And what's more, I'll give you a ring. Bragi the braggart, said Loki. You've never had a horse or a ring to your name, and you never will have. Of all the gods and elves in this hall, you're the greatest coward. When arrows are loosed, you barely dare peep from behind your shield. If I were outside, said Bragi evenly, and not sitting here in Aegir's hall, I'd twist your head off your miserable body. That would be a fair price for your lies. If only your actions matched up to your big mouth, Loki retorted. Look at Bragi sitting on the bench, as sweet and soft as any bride. If you feel so angry, why don't you get up and fight? Heroes don't waste words mapping things out. Then Eden turned to face her husband. Bragi, I beg you. Think of us and your children and all the gods. Leave Loki alone. Don't exchange any more insults here in Aegir's Hall. Enough, Eden! shouted Loki. I know no woman as wanton as you. What an appetite. You even wound your white arms about your brother's murderer. Despite Loki's withering abuse, Eden did not lose her composure. I will not exchange insults with Loki here in Aegir's Hall. All this ale has made Bragi talkative, and I've told him to keep his temper. Then the goddess Gifion added, Why do these two gods bandy jibes and sneers? Everyone knows how Loki revels in foul mockery and hates the gods in Asgard. Enough, Gifian! shouted Loki. I know a thing or two about you. I even know who seduced you. That boy offered you a sparkling necklace, and you, you straddled him. Loki, you're mad to incense Gifian, Odin called out. You've lost your senses. She can see all that has come as clearly as I can. Enough, Odin, shouted Loki. You never could be even-handed. You've often let the weaker man snatch victory in battle. I may have let the weaker man snatch victory in battle, Odin replied. You lived under the earth for eight winters in the shape of a woman, a milkmaid. Yes, and you've borne babies and been milked by them, a woman through and through. 
They say that on Sunzi you once worked charms and spells like a witch, replied Loki. They say you moved amongst men in the shape of a witch, a woman through and through. Now Odin's wife, Frigg, tried to restore peace. You would both do better to keep these things to yourselves, she said. There's nothing to be gained from raking up what's best forgotten. Enough, Frigg, shouted Loki. You're Fjorgin's daughter, and were born a whore. You may be Odin's wife, but you've shared your bed with his brothers Vili and Ve into the bargain. If I had a son, said Frigg, a son such as Baldur sitting beside me in Aegir's Hall, you'd not get away without a fight. Ah, Frigg, said Loki scathingly. I can see you'd like to know more about my skills. It was I who fixed things so that you'd never again welcome Baldur home. Freya rounded on Loki, her eyes blazing. Loki, you're mad to boast about your terrible crime. There's nothing Frigg does not know, even though she may remain silent. Enough, Freya, shouted Loki. I know you through and through, and you're not wholly spotless. You've slept with every single god and elf gathered in this hall. Your mouth is full of lies, said Freya, and you're spelling out your own doom. You'll leave here wishing you'd never bothered to come. Enough, Freya, shouted Loki. You're a foul witch with a string of evil works to your name. The bright gods caught you in bed with your own brother. And then, Freya, you farted. Njord raised his voice in defense of the goddesses and against Loki. A woman lies with her husband or lover or both. Does it really matter much in the end? It's far worse to clap eyes on this womanish god who has born babies. Enough, Njord! shouted Loki. You were sent from the east and given to the gods as a hostage. Hymir's daughters squatted over you and pissed straight into your mouth. The journey was long, said Njord, but it was a great honor to be given to the gods as a hostage. And I fathered a son who was well-loved and highest of those on high. That's too much, Njord, said Loki. I'll cap your absurd boast and share your secret. You spawned your fair son on your own sister. So at least you knew what to expect. Then Tyr spoke up in support of Njord's son. Fry, he called out, is the noblest of all the brave gods. He doesn't trifle with virgins or seduce other men's wives, and he frees bound men from their fetters. Enough, Tyr, shouted Loki. You've never been much of a hand at bringing two parties to understanding. He smiled wickedly. Need I remind you how you lost your right one when Fenrir snapped it off? I lost a hand, but you lost Rodvitnir, the mighty wolf. We were both hapless. And now in his fetters, Fenrir must chafe and wait until the world's end. Enough, Tyr! shouted Loki again. Your good wife was lucky enough to be the mother of my son. And were you paid one penny, you poor fool, by way of recompense? The wolf, cried Fry, will lie in chains at the mouth of the river until the gods meet their doom. And unless you bite on your tongue, you liesmith, you'll soon be chained up too. You're the one who bought Gymir's daughter with gold, retorted Loki, and sold your sword into the bargain. You poor fool, when the sons of Muspel ride through Mirkwood, you'll have to await them empty-handed. 
Fry's son Bigvir was enraged at the way Loki had insulted his master. If I were as nobly born as Fry, he said, and sit in so high a seat, I'd grab this ghastly crow and beat his bones into pulp. Who's that little creature? asked Loki, groveling and yapping and snapping. You're always whispering in Fry's ear or quibbling by the quern. I am Barley Bigvir, said Fry's servant, and I'm quick to get my way as gods and men allow. To see all father's sons all gathered to drink ale fills me with delight. Enough, Bigvir, shouted Loki. You've never been able to give men their due portion of meat, and when heroes made ready to fight, no one could find you. You are hiding under the straw strewn on the floor. You're drunk, Loki, called Heimdall. Your jabs and jibes are insane. Loki, why not leave off now? No one in his cups cares about curbing his tongue. Enough, Heimdall, shouted Loki. It was settled long ago that your life should be menial. You can never sleep or even sit down. Day and night you stand awake, the watchman of the gods. You're as quick as they come, Loki, said Skadi. But you won't be at large, twirling your tail much longer. The gods will bind you to a boulder with gut ripped out of your ice-cold sun. Even if the gods bind me to a boulder with gut ripped out of my ice-cold sun, I lead the way when we killed and captured your father, the giant Thiasi, jeered Loki. If you led the way when gods captured and killed Thiazi, Scotty said, my hall and my temples were always echo with curses on your name. Loki's mouth twisted and his eyes shone orange and green. You spoke much more sweetly to Laufey's son when you invited him into your bed. That's well worth a mention since we're both giving our weaknesses an airing. Thor's wife, Sif, stood up. She left her place at the bench and stepped towards Loki. Gently, she took the cup out of his clenched right fists and filled it again with ale. "'Greetings, Loki,' she said in her sweet, clear voice. "'Take this crystal cup brimming with fine ale. "'At least allow you to find me alone amongst us all, wholly guiltless.' Loki took the cup and drained it in one movement. "'You'd certainly stand alone if you were as chaste with all men as you are with most.' But I think I know one who has inveigled you out of your husband's arms and set you on fire. His name was Crafty Loki. Fry's second servant, Bela, raised her voice in Aegir's hall. The mountains are quaking. That can only mean one thing. Thor is on his way here from Bill Skirnir. He'll silence the one in this hall who slanders and sneers at gods and men alike. Enough, Bela! shouted Loki. You are Bigvir's wife, and you are poisonous through and through. It's a scandal that you mix with the gods at all, caked in your own excrement. Loki was so carried away by his flight of words that he did not see that Thor had walked into Aegir's hall. The god of thunder waited until Loki had had his say, and then stepped forward and crashed his fists onto the trestle table so that the crystal cups leapt into the air. Hold your tongue, you scum, he roared or my hammer Mjolnir will shut your mouth. I'll swipe your shoulder stone off your neck and that will be the end of you. Look, everyone, cried Loki unabashed. Here's the son of Earth. What a blustering bully you are, Thor. But you'll be less fierce when you grapple with Fenrir and see him gulp down Odin, the father of victory. Hold your tongue, you scum, roared Thor. 
On my hammer Mjolnir will shut your mouth. I'll pick you up and hurl you into the east, and no one will have to set eyes on you again. If I were you, Thor, said Loki, I wouldn't say too much about your own journey east. You cowered in the thumb of a glove, you noble god. You quite forgot your name was Thor. Hold your tongue, you scum, roared Thor, or my hammer Mjolnir will shut your mouth. I'll raise my right hand and what smashed Rungnir will smash our bones too. For all your threats with your hammer, said Loki, I fancy I have a long life before me. Do you remember the giant Skrymir's bag and bow? Unyielding those straps were. You were unable to get out the provisions and felt quite faint with hunger. Hold your tongue, you scum, roared Thor, or my hammer Mjolnir will shut your mouth. What smashed Rungnir will dispatch you to hell, right down to the doors of the dead. The god of thunder gripped Mjolnir menacingly. Loki raised one hand and shook his head. I've shown the gods and the sons of gods the sharp edges of my thought. But because of you and you alone, I think I'll take my leave now. I know all about your strength. Loki paused and looked defiantly around him and then addressed himself to his host. You've brewed fine ale, Aegir, but you'll never hold another such feast as this. Loki's voice was rising. Flickering flames will gorge on this hull and gut it and destroy everything you own. Your body will be flayed by fire. Loki turned and was gone, and his terrible words still echoed round the halls. For a long time, the gods and goddesses and elves stared into their ale, shaken and grieving. In silence they sat, and in silence they rose and left Aegir's hall. The Binding of Loki Loki knew that his days in Asgard had come to an end. He knew how soon anguish can give way to anger, and was sure the gods would avenge Baldur's death and detention in hell. He ran away. He made for a deserted part of Midgard, a remote place in the mountains at the head of a steep valley that fell into the sea. He found a hollow near Franang's Falls, and using the rock and rubble lying all around, built a low house that no man was likely to see until he had stumbled into it. It had four doors so that Loki could keep watch in every direction. Even so, he felt unsafe. When a gull circled and shrieked, or scree shifted on the mountain, or wind whistled in his walls, the trickster leapt up in alarm, certain that he had been tracked down. It didn't matter that days passed without a single visitor. Loki's anxiety grew greater day by day. He could not escape his own canker. He thought he might be better off if he were out of the house and in disguise. At dawn, the shape-changer often turned himself into a salmon and leapt into the seething cauldron at the base of Frenning's Falls. The cross-currents whirled around him. The thunder roared above him. Still, the salmon felt unsafe. In Loki's mind, it was not a question of whether, but of when, the gods would catch up with him. But fearful as he was, hunted and in hiding, he was more fearful of vengeance and vowed to remain at large for as long as he had the wits to do so. Early one evening, Loki sat beside his fire and began to play with some lengths of linen twine. He arranged them and rearranged them. He laid them out across each other and tied them and made them into a net with so fine a mesh that not even a small fish could hope to slip through it. 
For a long time, he stared at his fine device. Suddenly, he heard the sound of voices down in the valley. He saw a group of gods making their way toward him. Loki jumped up, threw the net into the fire, and hurried out of the door overlooking Franning's Falls. He ran down the slope, turned himself into a salmon once more, and slid into the boiling icy water. There was nothing that escaped Odin's eye when he sat in Hlinskjalf. He saw the comings and goings of every living creature in the Nine Worlds, and when he saw Loki's efforts to escape his fate, he sent a party of gods from Asgard to capture him. The first to step across the threshold of Loki's house was Kvasir, the wisest of them all. In the half-light, he peered around without a word. He looked at the rough table and bench, the bare walls, the almost lifeless fire. Kvasir bent down and stared at the pattern of gleaming white ash. He carefully examined it and understood what he saw. This, he said to his companions, is some device for catching fish. Let us catch a fish. The gods sat down in Loki's house and gave over the rest of the evening to making a wide net with which to drag the pool at the base of the falls and the river that hurried down the valley to the sea. They copied the subtle pattern Kvasir had found in the embers, and before they slept they had finished their work and were well content with it. At dawn the gods walked down under Franning's falls. The roar of water slamming against water was deafening. The air was misty with whirling and drifting spray. The gods stared around them and the whole world looked oyster and ivory and gray. Then Thor took one end of the net and motioning to the others to stay where they were waded across the water. So the gods began to drag the river and the salmon swam downstream in front of them. After a time, wily Loki found a safe place where the water sluiced between two slimy boulders, and he nestled there so that the net only scraped his back and did not snare him. When the gods brought up the net, there was nothing in it. They were all sure, though, that they had felt something alive in the water. They decided to try again, and this time they used stones to weight the bottom of the dragnet so that nothing could swim under it. Now the gods made their way back to the base of Franning's Falls, Thor on one side and all the rest on the other, and dropped the net into the water. Once more Loki swam ahead of them as they dragged the river, but this time there was no safety on the riverbed. He had no choice but to hurry on downstream. When Loki saw that the gods meant to drag the tumbling river right down to the shallows where it opened onto the sea, he turned round to face the net. He arched his back and with all his strength sprang into the air and right over it. The gods shouted and pointed at the salmon shining in the sunlight. They hurried back up to Franning's Falls, and there they argued about how to catch it. Each god had his own idea, but in the end they bowed to Kvasir. He said they should split into two groups, one on either bank, all except Thor who was to wade in midstream just behind the net. Now the gods began to drag the river for a third time. As before, Loki swam downstream some way in front of them. He knew that only two choices were open to him, to squirm and jump across the long stretch of shallows into the sea, or to turn and leap over the dragnet again. He thought the gods might catch him before he reached the safety of deep water, and so he turned, arched his back into a rainbow, and sprang into the air. The salmon flashed in the sunlight and jumped clear of the net. 
Then Thor groped and clutched at it, and the salmon slithered through his hands. Thor held on and tightened his grip. He squeezed and stayed the slippery salmon by its tail. It writhed and it twisted, but it would not escape. Loki was caught at last, and he knew it. After Baldur's death, not one of the gods would stain Gladsheim by spilling Loki's blood. But there was nothing holy about the barren ground of Midgard, and they were all eager to take vengeance on him. While Thor and one group of gods led Loki into a twilight cave, a dismal cavern belonging to bats and ticking with the drips of water from stalactites, the other party went off in pursuit of Loki's two sons, Vali and Narvi. They changed Vali into a wolf, and at once he leapt at his brother and sunk his teeth into his throat. He ripped Narvi's body apart before bounding away, howling toward Jotunheim. The gods took over where Vali had left off. They drew out Narvi's entrails and made their way to the cave. Loki's faithful wife, Sigyn, went with them, sorrowing over the fate of her two sons, the fate of her husband. Loki was thrown to the ground. He lay still. He looked at nobody and said nothing. Then the gods took three slabs of rock, stood them on end, and bored a hole through each of them. They stretched Loki over them, unwound Narvi's entrails and bound him with the gut of his own son as no one had ever been bound before. They trust Loki's shoulders to one slab, twisting the gut round his body under his armpits. They strapped Loki's loins to one slab, winding the gut round and round his hips. They clamped Loki's kneecaps to one slab, tying the gut round his legs. And no sooner was Loki bound than the entrails of his son became as hard as iron. Then Skadi carried a vile snake into the cave. She fastened it to a stalactite high up in the darkness so that its venom would drip straight onto Loki's face. For all his wiles and wit, there was nothing Loki could do. He lay still. He looked at nobody and said nothing. Then the gods left Loki there. No longer flushed but heavy-hearted and sorrowing, they left him to his fate and to faithful Sigyn. Sigyn and Loki wait in the damp, twilight cave, listening to the eerie echoes of each drip, the sound of the silence, the sound of their own breathing. Sigyn holds a wooden bowl over Loki's face, and slowly it fills with the snake's venom. When it is brimming, Sigyn carries the bowl away and empties it into a rock basin, a fermenting pool of poison. Loki is left unguarded, he screws up his eyes. The snake does not wait. Its venom splashes onto Loki's face, and in torment he shudders and writhes. He cannot escape, and the whole earth quakes. Loki lies bound. That is how things are, and how things will remain until Ragnarok. Ragnarok An Axe Age a sword age. Shields will be gashed. There will be a wind age and a wolf age before the world is wrecked. First of all, Midgard will be wrenched and racked by wars for three winters. Fathers will slaughter sons. Brothers will be drenched in one another's blood. Mothers will desert their menfolk and seduce their own sons. Brothers will bed with sisters. 
Then, Fimblevetter, the winter of winters will grip and throttle Midgard. Driving snow clouds will converge from north and south and east and west. There will be bitter frosts, biting winds. The shining sun will be helpless. Three such winters will follow each other with no summers between them. And so the end will begin. Then the children of the old giantess and Ironwood will have their say. The wolf's skull will seize the sun between his jaws and swallow her. He will spatter Asgard with gore. And his brother Hati will catch the moon and mangle him. The stars will vanish from the sky. The earth will start to shudder then. Great trees will sway and topple. Mountains will shake and rock and come crashing down. And every bond and fetter will burst. Fenrir will run free. Egther, watchman of the giants, will sit on his grave mound and strum his harp, smiling grimly. Nothing escapes the redcock Fjallar. He will crow to the giants from Birdwood. At the same time, the cock who wakes the warriors every day in Valhalla, golden-combed Gulenkambi, will crow to the gods. A third cock, rust-red, will raise the dead in hell. The sea will rear up, and the waves will pummel the shore, because Jormungand, the Midgard serpent, is twisting and writhing in fury, working his way onto dry land. And in those high seas, Nagelfar will break loose, the ship made from dead men's nails. The bows and the waist and the stern and the hold will be packed with giants, and Hrim will stand at the helm, heading towards the plain Vigrid. Loki, too, free from his fetters, will take to the water. He will set sails towards Vigrid from the north, and his dead weight will be all that ghastly crew in hell. Then the brothers Fenrir and Jormungand will move forward side by side. Fenrir's slavering mouth will gape open, so wide that his lower jaw scrapes against the ground and his upper jaw presses against the sky. It gapes still wider if there were no room. Flames will dance in Fenrir's eyes and leap from his nostrils. With each breath, meanwhile, Jormungand will spew venom. All the earth and the sky will be splashed and stained with his poison. The world will be in an uproar, the air quaking with booms and blares and their echoes. Then the sons of Muspel will advance from the south and tear apart the sky itself as they, too, close in on Vigrid. Surt will lead the way, his sword blazing like the sun itself. And as they cross Bivrust, the rainbow bridge will crack and break behind them. So all the giants and all the inmates of Hell and Fenrir and Jormungand and Surt and the blazing sons of Muspel will gather on Vigrid. They will all but fill that plain that stretches 120 leagues in every direction. The gods, meanwhile, will not be idle. Heimdall will leave his hall, Himinbjorg, and raise the great horn Gjall to his mouth. He will sound such a blast that it will be heard throughout the Nine Worlds. All the gods will wake and at once meet in council. Then Odin will mount Slepnir and gallop to Mimir's spring and take advice from Mimir there. Yggdrasil itself will moan, the ash that always was and waves over all that is. Its leaves will tremble. Its limbs shiver and shake even as two humans take refuge deep within it. Everything in heaven and in earth and hell will quiver. 
Then all the Aesir and all the Einherjar and Valhalla will arm themselves. They will don their helmets and their coats of mail and grasp their swords and spears and shields. Eight hundred fighting men will forge through each of that hall's five hundred and forty doors. That vast host will march towards Vigrid, and Odin will ride at their head, wearing a golden helmet and a shining corslet, brandishing Gungnir. Odin will make straight for the wolf Fenrir, and Thor right beside him will be unable to help because Jormungand will at once attack him. Fry will fight the fire giant Surt, and when Surt whirls his flaming blade, Fry will rue the day that he gave his own good sword to his servant Skirnir. It will be a long struggle, though, before Fry succumbs. The hound Garm from Gnipnaheller will leap at the throat of one-handed Tyr, and they will kill each other. The age-old enemies Loki and Heimdall will meet once more, and each will be the cause of the other's death. Thor, son of Earth, and the gaping Jormungand have met before, too. They are well matched. At Vigrid, the god will kill the serpent, but he will only be able to stagger back nine steps before he falls dead himself, poisoned by the venom Jormungand spews over him. Odin and Fenrir were the first to engage, and their fight will be fearsome. In the end, though, the wolf will seize Allfather between his jaws and swallow him. That will be the death of Odin. At once his son Vidar will stride forward and press one foot on Fenrir's bottom jaw, and the shoe he will wear then has been a long time in the making. It consists of all the strips and bits of leather paired off the heels and toes of new shoes since time began, all the leftovers thrown away as gifts for the god. Then Vidar will take hold of Fenrir's other jaw and tear the wolf apart, so avenging his father. Then Sort will fling fire in every direction. Asgard and Midgard and Jotunheim and Niflheim will become furnaces, places of raging flame, swirling smoke, ashes, only ashes. The nine worlds will burn and the gods will die. The Einherjar will die. Men and women and children in Midgard will die. Elves and dwarves will die. Giants will die. Monsters and creatures of the underworld will die. Birds and animals will die. The sun will be dark and there will be no stars in the sky. And the earth will sink into the sea. And the earth will rise again. Out of the water, fair and green, the eagle will fly over cataracts, swoop into the thunder, and catch fish under crags. Corn will ripen in fields that were never sown. Vidar and Vali will still be alive. They will survive the fire and the flood and make their way back to Edavol, the shining plain where palaces once stood. Bodhi and Magni, sons of Thor, will join them there, and they will inherit their father's hammer, Mjolnir and Baldur and Hod will come back from the world of the dead. It will not be long before they too tread the new grass on Edavol. Honer will be there as well, and he will hold the wand and foretell what is to come. The sons of Vili and Ve will make up the new number, the gods in heaven, home of the winds. They will sit down in the sunlight and begin to talk. Turn by turn they will call up such memories. Memories such as are known to them alone. They will talk over many things that happened in the past, and the evil of Jormungand and the wolf Fenrir. And then, 
Amongst the waving grass, they will find golden chessboards, treasures owned once by the Aesir, and gaze at them in wonder. Many courts will rise once more, some good, some evil. The best place of all will be Gimli in heaven, a building fairer than the sun roofed with gold. That is where the rulers will live, at peace with themselves and each other. Then there will be Bremir on Okolnir, where the ground is always warm underfoot. There will always be plenty of good drink there for those who have a taste for it. And there will be Sindri, a fine hall that stands in the dark mountains of Nidafjol, made wholly of red gold. Good men will live in these places. But there will be another hall on Nastrond, the shore of corpses. That place in the underworld will be as vile as it is vast. All its doors will face north. Its walls and roof will be made of wattled snakes, their heads facing inward, blowing so much poison that it runs in rivers through the hall. Oathbreakers and murderers and philanderers will wade through those rivers. Needhog too will outlive the fire and the flood, and under Yggdrasil he will suck blood from the bodies of the dead. The two humans who hid themselves deep within Yggdrasil, some say Hodmimir's wood, will be named Leif and Lifthrasir. Surt's fire will not scorch them, it will not even touch them, and their food will be the morning dew. Through the branches, through the leaves, they will see light come back. For before the sun is caught and eaten by the wolf's skull, she will give birth to a daughter, no less fair than herself, and will follow the same sky path and light the world. Leif and Lifthrasir will have children, children will bear children, there will be life and new life, life everywhere on earth. That was the end, and this is the beginning. <laughs>